let me start out by explaining why we're here today. Last week, Deputy Mayor Gloria Reyes and I, along with Anthony Cooper, who's one of the citizens who's been so instrumental in some of our intervention programs, attended a National League of Cities conference designed for five cities working on reducing the jail population within our communities and our states. The other cities included Savannah, Georgia, St. Louis, Missouri. Um, help me, Gloria. Um, uh, Gainesville, Florida. Gainesville, Florida, and one other. Yeah. Birmingham. Thank you, Birmingham. And we had been selected because we were cities that were making an effort and really trying to do something in so many different areas. And what we're going to focus on today is just one item. But the reason for it is that after word got out that uh, the city of Madison was part of this, someone said, well, what has the city done? Because they would question whether or not there was any evidence whatsoever as to uh, work that we had done. And it's really rather profound. And if you look at the graph that you see here, uh, and we'll bring out the chart that backs it up. I just had it printed off, and you can get the actual numbers off of it. What you can see is a very significant decline in the total number of arrests made by the Madison Police Department, uh, particularly in the last two years. And this is a significant decline since 2011. We've almost cut in half the number of arrests. And in fact, we've uh, almost, uh, by the same margin, cut down the number of contacts. You'll also notice that violent arrests haven't changed. So in other words, we are just as firm and just as successful in addressing uh, really violent crime, while at the same time finding all sorts of alternatives to arrests. And this is work uh, which is embraced by the Madison Police Department, which has, very frankly, come under a lot of unfair criticism in the last several years where they have been seen as an instrumentality in regards to what's referred to uh, some, some people uh, flippantly as the uh, school-to-prison pipeline. This has changed. It's a combination of collaborative efforts, and it could not take place without the leadership of the Madison Police Department. Now, if you, you look at the, uh, why did everybody get the chart except for me? Thanks, Chief. <laughs> All right, so if you look at the chart in the, uh, let's just take total without breaking it down by race, uh, excuse me, by ethnicity. That's another thing to understand. Um, and some people ask, well, why aren't uh, Hispanics uh, or Latinx in here, and the answer is, when this data was first collected in 2011, it was not based on race. It was based on ethnic background. And so we wanted to keep the comparison consistent. So you can see that in 2011, 
there were 124,854 contacts. That has dropped to 91,000 in 2017. And you'll see that the big drop takes place from 15 to 16. In 16, we've got the first really significant drop, and then it continues again into 17. And then if you go to the lower half, you can see in terms of total arrests that we went from 13,537 down to 8,310. And this is far greater proportionally to what we're seeing nationally. And I want to go back to where I started. While this is taking place, the city is no less safe than it was when we started this. And we still do have some challenges. I want to speak a little about those challenges. And then um, Gloria and our, our police staff can, can tell you some of the strategies that have been adopted. In 2016, we saw a number of homicides rising at a very unsettling race. And that rate was disturbing to everyone in the community. We went into 2017, and Deputy Mayor Reyes headed up a group of city, county, nonprofit leaders formulating a strategy that we were to adopt later in the year. At the same time, we had a continued increase in homicides, so that by the time we got well into the summer of 2017, we had a record number for the city of Madison. If memory serves me correct, nine of those homicides included the tragic effects of young African-American men killing other African-American men. August 1st of last year, two things happened simultaneously. The police department launched a program going after, with great intensity, some of the most violent individuals in the community. And at the same time, the work that the team had developed in the office behind me uh, led to the uh, interventions that we were to see that are still out there now. And over the last 12 months, in total in the city of Madison, there's been two homicides. One was uh, the, the incident where a, a father uh, with great family stress uh, killed his son and committed suicide. And the other one was a situation where an African male, African American male killed another African American male. We've seen a significant drop in regards to these homicides. We're hoping that this will continue in future years and the kind of strategies that we've developed will, will also be embraced and will be expanded. At the same time, we are plagued by low-level activity of great concern uh, that has been increasing 
and this will obviously be a, a focus of law enforcement in the future. And we see it reflected particularly in two different area areas. One is shots fired, and the other has been the car hijackings, uh, which unfortunately involve too many young people. So we're not saying everything's perfect, but we have seen some significant changes, particularly in regards to the homicides. And most importantly, what we want to focus on today is a significant decline in the number of contacts and uh, the number of arrests uh, with, within our community. So what have been some of the strategies? And one of them has been a restorative justice program, a peer group uh, court, and who's going to take that one up? Gloria? Um, so uh, Assistant Chief Patterson has been, um, you can come up here and join me, um, has been part of our National League of Cities uh, team on reducing jail use among young, young adults um, and really been focusing on uh, diversion opportunities um, at the front line in, uh, where officers can really take, um, uh, make, use their discretion to divert um, our young adults between the ages of uh, 16 to 24. And um, so a lot of the restorative justice practices are, have been strong partnerships throughout the years that the Madison Police Department have um, been a part of, and that is through uh, with the YWCA, uh, that is the Time Bank Youth Court, um, Dane County, um, has been a strong partner. Uh, so it really is, um, has been a partnership throughout the years. But we found through the National League of Cities uh, Technical Assistance Grant was that um, cities have the opportunity, although we don't control the jails, uh, we have the opportunity to divert our young adults um, at the front line as officers are responding. But we're also finding that we can't, officers can't do this alone. Our Madison Police Department work very hard day in and day out, and they need the support of our community and our community partners uh, to step in to uh, reduce the disparities in our criminal justice system. Um, and um, I know that the Madison Police Department has done some really good work um, every day uh, in making those discretionary decisions. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk about some of the things that you guys do. Um, Absolutely. So uh, within the last 12 months, um, we've expanded what was once a, a pilot program, the Community Restorative Court, or Dane County CRC, uh, which started in South Madison primarily. Uh, that has now expanded to all six of our districts. Uh, we are, we're now screening cases for, for uh, young people ages 17 to 25 uh, who commit lower-level offenses, both municipal and state. Uh, offenses um, to be diverted to this program or potentially diverted to this program and providing them uh, as, as younger individuals an opportunity uh, to repair the harm that they've committed um, in a different way and not be channeled the more traditional way into the, the standard uh, criminal courtroom, um, but hopefully uh, finding better resolutions that uh, will not only impact them but impact the, the victims of the crimes uh, and impact the uh, the community in a more positive, meaningful way, um, and hopefully then reduce the the opportunities or the instances where they reoffend or recommit new crimes. Um, so this this particular initiative has been a very uh, very interesting, uh, I think, uh, last 12 months where we've dug into some of the lower level crime data and we're starting to really uh, look for 
what could have been uh, opportunities where we could have better utilized existing resources like the CRC um, and some of the other community partners and programs that exist currently in the community. So we're trying to find better ways um, and more, or more meaningful ways to connect individuals um, to certain crimes. So we're starting to look at not only uh, geographic data uh, uh, but incident data um, by age and by demographic. And then, um, you know, something that the Madison Police Department is leading on and the mayor is the MARI grant, uh, the Madison Area Recovery Initiative. Uh, and that is really offering opportunities, uh, diversion opportunities for uh, those who are um, uh, addicted um, and um, who on opioid, um, with the opioid epidemic in our city, in our county, uh, we have really been trying to uh, figure out how to divert uh, those individuals into um, help uh, rather than into our Dane County Jail. Um, anything else you want to say about that, Chief? I, I, the only other thing I would Thank you. Another community restorative justice uh, lens that we've really been very proud of in the last two years is when I first took office, I asked that our court services section generate and provide to me all of the data spread for kids between the ages of 12 to 16 who had adverse contacts with the police which resulted in a city ordinance ticket being generated. When I got that spreadsheet back I was overwhelmed in that over 70 percent were our kids of color within the community. So working with uh, the city attorney's office and as Deputy Mayor uh, Gloria mentioned is that she also got on board the municipal judge, uh, Time Bank, Peer Support, YWCA, and we said, can we create an option? Because so often forfeiture actions are the first sort of uh, clarion calls of a kid who might be wayward, who might be making some bad choices, and offer an opportunity short of putting them into the criminal justice system that might redirect that behavior in a, in a positive, more uh, predictive outcome where they're supported. Municipal court sanctions in and of themselves are only forfeiture based. Sometimes they can modify driver's licenses or work permits, but the opportunity to provide wraparound services is exceedingly limited. So owing to this overture that we've made, a kid can now basically go through one of two portals. Uh, they can go the conventional route and take a ticket and sometimes those tickets are paid. More often, a parent is paying it, and there's very little implication beyond that sting. Or a kid and their parent can choose to opt for a different portal, and that is, will you go to a restorative justice court of one's peers working with mentors from the YWCA and Time Bank and find some mechanism for having conversations and also saying, what is it that you do like that we could perhaps pair you with and provide some mechanism of community restoration for those acts or activities that led to this adverse contact. And we're finding through the results of Andre Johnson, Dane County Social Services, is that three out of every four of our youth are opting, in fact, to participate in this alternative program. And so that, to me, is much more encouraging because if we can be preemptive, uh, proactive and find a mechanism for sort of rerouting what would otherwise be a criminal justice first indoctrination, then I think that's a positive step in the right direction and we're encouraged by that. Chief, let me just add, no, I just want to add a couple of things, then we'll do questions. Please. Okay. Uh, I want to 
the chief mentioned Andre Johnson. I just want to emphasize the importance of the work, the collaboration of Andre Johnson's team at uh, the county with us, as well as, um, as I mentioned earlier, Anthony Cooper and Reverend G at Nehemiah and, and the work that they've done. Two more things. If you look at the chart that we handed out, you'll see in 2011 among African Americans, there were 32,102 contacts. And that most recently for 17, it was 29,293. You'll see that as a percentage of all contacts, uh, contacts among African Americans during that period increased about 7, 6%. If you go to arrests, you'll see the decline from almost 6,000 arrests down to 3,631, and that the percentage of total arrests hasn't changed. And I want to emphasize what this shows us is that a contact among uh, the African-American community and our police department does not necessarily lead to arrests, and in fact, as the data demonstrates, as the data demonstrates, we've seen a significant decline in the number of arrests. The last thing I wanted to share with you is that part of this decline is also related to our schools. Now, one of the things we did was we examined where were the arrests being made, particularly of young people. And we obviously identified, and we've talked about this in the past, we identified three leading areas shopping centers and malls, the schools, and bus transfer points. And during this period of time, we've seen a significant decline in the number of arrests uh, made in our schools. And again, I want to make the, the point that the presence of an educational resource officer in our public schools is a healthy thing, it's productive, and with the right administration and the right policies, it does not mean uh, uh, an arrest is, is going to happen. Lastly, the chief mentioned what's going on in the municipal court. And while we uh, have not yet finalized next year's operating budget, one of the small hills we're going to have to climb, have to climb is dealing with the reduced revenues in the municipal court. It's showing up in a number of, uh, the, the, this, this, this new policy is showing up in a number of ways, but one way it can be measured is we're collecting fewer fines. And uh, while it creates some financial problems for the uh, operation and administration of the court, we think that this is a real healthy sign. So, you had a question? Yeah. Oh. Okay. How do you can you explain how arrest numbers can drop by 5,000? Because the stuff you're talking about that's restorative, mm -hmm. wouldn't that happen after an arrest has been made? Uh, well, one of the things, the two, that the officers are empowered to do is, as we look at the conventional platforms known as the criminal justice system, one of the things that has been emphasized as a, poor, as a point of practitioners is that we talk about striving for BPR, best possible resolution. Historically, the resolution many times has been that which is the default, which is tickets or an arrest. And the officers have been empowered to think out of the box, 
understand that they will have the backing of the administration and to look for options that don't necessarily have to conform themselves to that traditional paradigm. And I think what we're seeing is a greater, healthier buy-in of our line officers in looking at those issues where they can look beyond the patternistic stuff that's been done historically. So I'd like to believe that part of that is owing to the officers' understanding of that in this brave new world we're looking at, restorative justice is a part and parcel of the way we do business now. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, sure. in 2017, are your officers making different judgments and decisions than they would have made six years ago when approaching someone? Like, in 2011, they would have just automatically arrested somebody, and now they're they're thinking about it before arresting them? Or is, are we, or like, I mean, how do you get to a number of 5,000, or is it, are there a lot of people that would have been re repeat offenders that are not, that are not being arrested a second or third time? That's well, a huge number, 5,000. Yeah. And some of that is, is going to be difficult to really call out with a degree of certainty, perhaps, uh, if Chief Williams would like to offer a comment. But I think what you also find is that there's a greater sense of awareness and diagnostics ability. We've always been governed by the threshold of probable cause to arrest. That isn't to suggest that the arrests that were done five years ago were somehow lacking in judicial authority for those arrests because they were always there. But I think what we've also decided is that for example, if the behavior manifests itself as being contrary to criminal statutes, is that behavior being driven in fact by criminal intent or is it being driven by the fact that when we look deeper through our diagnostics, through our collaboration, that what, what, what we might be seeing is a manifestation of a mental illness, an episodic break, and in which case that individual should not be looked at as an arrest component but should be looked at alternatively for an emergency detention or a voluntary admission, a collaboration with Journey Mental Health. I think the officers are more cognizant that we have a lot of tools in our toolkit that we're continuing to fortify them with that default to an arrest or a citation need not be the first option or the default mechanism. And I think to some extent, not all that, but to some extent I think that represents a sort of a sea change in the way we look at our roles. Let me mention something that came out Sorry. of our, our meeting with the National League of Cities last week. And this was something universal for all five cities. We have had, for several hundred years, a criminal justice system in this country. It underwent substantial change over the last 25 to 30 years. It did so with certain kinds of mandatory sentencing, three strikes and you're out, and other very punitive actions which have filled up the jails. The response to that by those of us who are on the streets and making decisions has been, in effect, to accept that. And now what's happening is municipalities throughout the country are saying, okay, you folks really screwed up the criminal justice system. You've made some disastrous uh, decisions. They're reflected in such data as the fact that here in Wisconsin we lock up twice as many people as does the state of Minnesota. We are going to find alternatives to that criminal justice system. We're going to find workarounds, workarounds that kill, still keep the community safe, but at the same time take the offender and provide the offender an opportunity for a productive life without being so onerous and without being so forceful
that we put them into a prison and which they may not come out for, for decades. So that's really an important thing to, to, to understand, and that was one of the big takeaways that we, we, uh, we had from our, our conference last week, is that individual municipalities around the country have recognized that the criminal justice system doesn't work as it's been structured by state legislatures and by the, the U.S. Congress, and we're going to find a better way of resolving these problems and still keeping communities safe. I guess I was maybe hoping um, the chief could explain a little more on what it looks like when it's a contact that doesn't become an arrest. He was, he was working on that with the mental illness allegory, but I'm wondering because when I think of, you know, restorative justice programs and arrests going down, I think of you. Chief, we had that teenager just the other day in the family dispute, the 14-year-old. Um, I don't know if you remember which one it is. It's, we, had a, we had a situation that was just Monday, I think, of this week. We had a 14-year-old in a violent situation in the family, and under old practices, that juvenile uh, would have been taken to detention. There would have been punishments. And in this particular instance, the parents felt safe having the child in their custody, treatment is going to be sought. And so an alternative uh, was, was, was chosen, the officer in consultation with another officer in consultation with the family uh, made a decision that may profoundly change this, this child's life. That's the kind of decision that's, that's being made. In the restorative justice area, uh, maybe Gloria or one of you could, could explain what happens. A kid gets picked up. Perhaps they've been involved in a car theft. And if they're 18 or 19, they're treated as an adult. And now, 17. Okay, so now what, what happens to that kid? Do you want to talk about the community restorative Sure. Uh, so the way that we're uh, bringing people or have people who are viable candidates to the community restorative court, it's two ways. It's either at the front line uh, when the arrest decision is made, uh, but more frequently it's after an arrest decision is made. Um, on, we do a weekly screening of all arrests for people ages 17 to 25 um, and take a look at each specific case. And if, if it's uh, a case that um, falls within the MOU of the, the CRC, then those are forwarded on to the community restorative court. Um, so it's uh, still an aspiration, I think, at some point to get this to be more frequently uh, referred at the frontline arrest decision, um, but, but uh, we, we're getting there. Um, the expansion was one step, um, and next steps are, are going to be to, to, to better educate that frontline and, and get those decisions made at the point of arrest. Still, no. Oh, still me. I thought you were pointing at Gloria. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm trying to keep you there. Okay. Um, so a contact that doesn't necessarily lead to an arrest can be a decision out in the field. But does that mean an arrest can get rolled back because it gets overlooked or gets, you know, examined later on, like you said? Like these arrests go into... Well, it doesn't get rolled back, per se. What happens is, is instead of going the traditional route to either municipal court or the state court, it gets routed to the community restorative court. Um, now, it's completely voluntary on the, the part of the offender if they want to participate or not. If they say no, then the traditional route still stands in front of them. Uh, if they want to participate uh, and opt in and then complete the repair harm agreement, which is decided by the community restorative court, 
then that arrest uh, is, is gone. It's not on their record. There's no CCAP entry. Um, and there's not kind of that cloud, so to speak, you know, following them around for, for the rest of their adult lives. So. Does it show up in data like this, though? So I understand if you're sending some people to CRC, like, before they're even arrested? Or? So in our specific data that you're looking at there as a contact and as an arrest, yes, it will. But if you look then at specific arrests, we're tracking which arrests then go to the community restorative court as opposed to the state. So, I mean, the idea of the National League of Cities is really just to go further down. I mean, it is really at the point of where the officers are responding and they're at the scene. It's providing diversion opportunities and tools for our law enforcement officers so that, I mean, we, so that restorative justice is available um, and we need that process. And we're finding that it's been really effective. Um, but at the, at the time where our officers are responding, there are so many opportunities where we could divert uh, these young adults um, away from uh, a further further moving into the criminal justice system, it, meaning restored to court. So it is about if our officers are in contact with a mental health uh, individual, that they are able to contact somebody right away uh, to come and support their work. Um, if it is somebody who is um, on, on, on drugs or, you know, has some other issues, a disorderly issue with a young adult um, in the home uh, where we can figure out ways to problem solve rather than just rely on police to to uh, to send them and to respond a second and a third time. It is really diverting them into a different direction. Uh, so that is what the National League of Cities um, on reducing jail use is all about. We're not quite there yet. Uh, we are looking at the data. We are digging deeper. We're trying to figure out um, how we move and bring our partners together to be able to uh, come up with a, a comprehensive plan uh, where we're bringing our different partners um, together to, uh, to respond along with police potentially or will, have, will be accessible for police uh, while, while they're on scene. In terms of like, formal restorative courts, is it just the Dane County CRC and then the, the YWCA? So there's three of them? Time Bank Youth Court are in our schools. Okay. So there's kind of like three distinct programs. Yes. Like yep. Do you all track numbers of how uh, many more kids are going to those? Yes, we are tracking those numbers. Um, and actually the YWCA is actually doing an assessment right now uh, about the effectiveness of those programs and where um, and identifying any gaps to improve uh, the restorative justice uh, court process. When did those programs start in this? Like those three um, programs? I would say uh, 2014, um, 15, was it earlier 14 than? 15. 14, 15. One thing, too, is since we have a national audience here, one of the things that I would really like as a legislative initiative is to put 17-year-olds back into the, the juvenile justice code, uh, having them waived at 18, when there's a lot of them that are just still sort of going through a maturational process, impulsivity, and in school settings, I think that uh, all the best of intentions over two decades ago, putting 17-year-olds and making them automatically waived into adult courts may have served some jurisprudence in terms of holding kids accountable, but I think the unintended consequences is that we now have greater empirical science to suggest that that growth and maturation period leads to greater compulsivity, impulsivity, 
and we're getting too many kids at age 17 thrust into an adult criminal justice system for which they are not being well served and they're being labeled far too early as people with a criminal record. I would really like to see the legislative forces that will put that back to age 18 for original adult courts of jurisdiction. I think that would be a huge legislative win and would help us with these numbers in terms of intervention and preemption. Any other questions? Is there a direct correlation to the number of arrests and the jails? And the reason I'm asking the question is because I picture times where you've got, uh, like the Tony Robinson marches, people would eventually be you know, taken off in, in handcuffs, but 10 or 20 minutes later, they're released. So are they being, does that, that may count as temporarily as an arrest, but they're not going to, they didn't spend time in jail. Is the 5,000 reduction, how does that, do you understand the question? We, uh, uh, while a citation might be a technical arrest, which we would acknowledge, most of the time, the best practice is, if there's sufficient ID, is that you cite and release at the scene, that you don't even make that a custodial moment, taking him to jail. So by far and away, overwhelmingly, those are cite and release and would not be reflected as incarcerations at the jail. Would they be still contact? That would be considered a cita A citation would be considered a technical arrest. Okay. Not a contact. More formal than a contact. And then, let me just say that we won't know the real results for at least another five to ten years. It's going to take some time before we see uh, the long-term consequences here. After your conference last week, do you have any ideas for next steps and new initiatives that you want to do? Um, the, the five cities are going to continue working together. There's going to be regular conference calls there's going to be a regular agenda, and we will start on our own developing alternatives. Uh, some may only be implemented by one city. Some may be uh, implemented by all of us. In terms of my own thinking, uh, a, a couple of things. Uh, one is that we really need to focus, in terms of the, the law and order phrase, on the most serious criminals. That uh, if you look at some of the research by Professor Sharkey, by David Kennedy, um, there's, there's, there's a gradation and there seems to be a line where uh, violence and assaults are, are just a, a regular occurrence in some people's lives, that's where we, we have to focus. The second thing, which is sort of a reinforcement of where areas we've been working on, is what's going on in the areas of mental health and substance abuse. There is just simply no question that three or four decades of neglect in this area in this country, including Wisconsin, has left us with both police and fire departments spending a significant amount of their time addressing issues that uh, we, we wouldn't have initially identified as law enforcement. In other words, uh, I'll give some examples in terms of the fire department. Um, many fires 
actual fires themselves are set by people who are impaired and and that is of, of great cost and consequence when we look at the daily sheets for the police department take that young person I was referring to earlier that 14 year old tremendous number of our uh, initial encounters with people in a violent situation is one where they're having some sort of episode which relates to, to behavioral health. And the absence of treatment, particularly uh, the role of trauma in early childhood, is, is a significant area that must be addressed. Okay. Thank you all very much.